Thank you very much. Great to be speaking to you tonight. Tonight I want to talk to you about mission. You might be aware, if you've been with us recently, that this year, this uh, calendar year, we're kind of trying a different way of doing things with a different focus for each of the three terms. So this term, we're having a big focus on mission. Actually, thinking, how do we go out? How do we invite the people in our town, those around us who don't know Jesus? How do we tell them about Jesus, about what he's done, and invite them to come and follow him? And today, I want to think particularly about how we think about mission. Because how you think hugely affects how you act and how you feel. Every decision you make, everything you do in life, actually is all shaped by how you're thinking and what you believe and how you're interpreting the world. And that's definitely true with mission. How you view mission, how you understand what it means to, to be doing evangelism, to be telling people about Jesus, will hugely affect how you feel about it and how you actually go about doing it. And I think there are two different ways we think about it. And there's two camps, and you'll believe one of these two ways. Either you'll take the first position, which is the my mission position. And on this view, you have got a mission given to you by God. It's your job to go and convince people and persuade people to believe the gospel. You're like a secret agent who's been brought into the big chief's office, who's been given the task and sent out to go and do it on your own, go and get the job done. The problem with that is it's a pretty daunting task. If it's down to us and the weight of responsibilities on our shoulders to persuade people and convince people, it's a pretty weighty thing. And actually, there'll be some people we just think, you just seem so far away from God, so far away from ever responding to Jesus. We just think, if it's my mission, it's my job, they're never going to respond. And another problem with this is actually, it can just leave us feeling really guilty. Because we think, I keep sharing the gospel with this friend, I keep trying to tell them about Jesus, and they haven't responded. And we think, well, is it me? Am I not doing it well enough? But this evening, I want to say, I think the Bible presents a totally different understanding of mission. Something we might call God's mission. That actually God is the one who's on mission. All throughout the Bible we see God is one who's passionate about saving people, passionate about bringing people into relationship with himself. And he is the one who convinces, he's the one who persuades, he's the one who causes faith to spring up inside of people's hearts and for them to turn to him. And the amazing thing is that we get to play a part too. We get to partner with him, we get to be voice pieces for him as it were, mouthpieces for him, playing our part as well. And when we get this, it changes everything. Suddenly, mission seems like a much easier thing. We're not convincing people. We're just announcing something, and God works in their heart. Suddenly, actually, anyone can be changed by the gospel. That friend who seems so far away from God, in a moment, God can act, and God can call them to himself. And also, it means we don't need to feel guilty. If we're doing our part we leave it in God's hands, actually. We don't feel guilty because people aren't responding when we share the gospel with them, actually. We know God's in control, and we leave it in his hands. And I want to show you today that this is the biblical elegant mission by looking at 1 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a guy called Paul, who's one of the early church leaders, to a church in a city called Corinth. Paul himself had planted this church. He turned up in Corinth. He started telling them about Jesus in the synagogue to the Jews and then to the non-Jews outside of the synagogue. And a church gets planted. And Paul kind of kept up his relationships, kept talking to these guys. But it seems that things have got really messy in Corinth. And one Corinthians is basically one after another and after another problems and things that are happening in Corinth that Paul needs to address. And the first of these, where we're going to look today, He's addressing the fact that the church has begun to divide into different factions. And there are people saying, well, I follow Paul. And there's other people saying, well, I follow Peter or I follow Apollos. 
And you can kind of imagine in this room tonight, they'd be huddling in a corner. There'd be people over here saying, well, we're Paul's people. And there'd be people over there saying, well, we're Peter's people. And there'd be people in the back corner saying, well, we're Apollos' people. But Paul comes along and says, no, no, no. You're all God's people. You're meant to be one. And the first way he addresses it is by saying, it wasn't because of me or because of Peter or because of Apollos that you ever believed. It was because of God. It was because of the God who is on mission. He lays down this key truth that God is on mission. So we're going to start, we're going to look at one paragraph which will, will tease out this theology, this truth about God. And then we're going to look at a second paragraph where Paul himself applies that to the task of evangelism. He says, if that's the case, how does that affect how we do evangelism? So let's read from uh, 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 18. Paul has just said that he's come to preach and that he deliberately comes not using clever words, so that he wouldn't empty the cross of its power. And now he begins to talk more about the word of the cross and this power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He starts by talking about the fact that when the gospel is proclaimed, there are two different responses. Some people hear the message and they just think it's folly, it's, it's foolishness, it's absurdity. Some people hear it and in it they see the power of God. The first response just says, well, how could a man who was crucified on a Roman cross be the saviour of the world? It seems absurd. And it's really important that we get that to those who don't believe in Jesus, this is how the gospel sounds. Because actually if we think well, people are going to be persuaded by our intellectual arguments, we're going to take the my mission view. We're going to be trying to persuade them ourselves. Actually, when we get that, but people don't believe in Jesus, the gospel is absurd. We realize, actually, if it's down to us, it's not going to work. We need God to do something, God to change their hearts first. And we become, I think, immune to this. We get very familiar about talking about the cross of Jesus. We sing about it, we read about it, we talk about it, all rightly so. But we kind of forget what crucifixion really is. Crucifixion was the worst form of execution in the ancient world. It was saved for the worst sort of criminals because of that. About 100 years before Jesus, a Roman philosopher called Cicero said this. He said, The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. He's saying this thing is so horrific, so shameful, that a good Roman citizen shouldn't even think about it. They shouldn't even hear people talking about it. They shouldn't even see anything about it. That's why people heard this message of a crucified saviour as folly. And we know they did. We can have a look here at an image. This is an inscription from Rome from about 200 AD. It's about 150 years after Jesus. And on the left here, you can see a guy standing. He's got his arm raised in worship. And there you can see a picture of a figure, a human figure with a donkey's head being crucified on a cross. And the scribbling underneath says, Alexamenos worships his God. This is mocking Christians for believing in a crucified saviour. This is what 
those outside of the church perceived the gospel as. And I think it's still true today. If you translate the gospel into modern terms, it's basically the equivalent of saying a guy who was executed in the electric chair is now reigning as the saviour of the world. To our friends, it's just absurd. It seems like foolishness. And so if we are trying to convince them intellectually, trying to use clever words, clever arguments, we're not going to get very far. Now, we might help people's understanding, and that's good. We can help people get a better understanding of the gospel. But understanding is totally different from believing. And we can't make people take that step. So things like apologetics, which is where we're answering people's objections to belief in God and belief in Jesus, that's really good. That helps people's understanding. And that's a tool God can use. But actually, we on our own cannot make people believe. We can't make people go from understanding the gospel to seeing it's something they need for themselves. But Paul says this same message to those of us who are being saved is the power of God. The good news is that this message truly is the power of God to save perishing humans. And notice power isn't actually the opposite of folly. The opposite of folly or foolishness is wisdom. But he doesn't say the gospel is good wisdom, it's good advice. He says it's power. It's the power of God in history to save perishing people. And so what makes the difference? What makes the difference if someone hears the gospel as folly or as power? Ultimately, it's God. It's the God who is on mission. Paul tells us there are two groups that these two responses correspond to. Those who hear it just as foolishness, as folly, are those perishing. The Bible says we all start in a position where actually we're perishing. We're moving further and further away from God. We all choose to to worship other things, to give our love and our devotion and our attention to created things rather than to the creator. And we all start under a position of being under condemnation, under judgment. We've been the makers of our own downfall. But then God steps in. God steps in and saves. And when it says those being saved, the second group, It means someone external is doing it. If I told you I was being hurt, you wouldn't assume I was hurting myself. You'd assume someone was hurting me. This is when God steps in. The thing that transforms those who are perishing and see the gospel as folly to those who are being saved and see it as the power of God is God. God himself is the ultimate missionary. And this is kind of the thought that Paul develops. In the next verse, he gives us a quote from Isaiah 29, verse 14, where Israel, the context is that they're making political alliances, they're trying to save themselves, trying to uh, get their own way through. And God says, no, no, it's not through human wisdom that you're going to be saved. It's by him acting. He says, I'm going to destroy human wisdom. So Paul shows us it's not a new thing. Then he shows us it's true in experience. He says, well, kind of look around you. Look in the kingdom of God. Look in the church. Where are all the wise people? Where are all the clever clogs? Actually, he says, most of them aren't here. Because he says it's not about clever words. It's not about clever arguments. It's about the God who steps in and changes hearts. And then he shows us just that God's wisdom, God's way of thinking, God's way of doing things is just so totally different. We, in our human wisdom, think, well, we're going to connect with God. We're going to reach him. We're going to get there. And God says, no, I'm going to use what seems like foolishness to you to come and get you. And then picking up in verse 22, he continues to explain this. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews, the people of God, given the promises of God in the Old Testament, they wanted signs. When God's Messiah, the promised deliverer, turned up, they wanted to see powerful things happen. They wanted to see spectacular things happen to convince them that this was the guy. And we see this in the Gospels. The Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they say, If you're really God's Messiah... 
show us a sign. And Jesus speaks very strongly to them. And he says, not going to be a sign for you. Well, interestingly, he says the only sign there'll be is the sign of Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be in the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus says the only sign, ultimately, is again the cross, is his death. The Jews wanted signs, but the Greeks wanted wisdom. All of Greek culture was about this great intellectual pursuit, this great attempt to, to master the world and to connect with the divine through their minds, through their intellectual thinking. Physical proof for the Jews, rational proof for the Greeks. And I think it's the same for many of our friends who don't know Jesus. Some of them say, well, I want to see physical proof. I want to see it with my eyes. I want to hear it with my ears. I want to experience something. Some of them say, well, no, no, you need to convince me rationally. I need to have it making sense. I need to have it all adding up in my head. But Paul says the Christian gospel is completely different. It kind of comes through the middle of those two as a third completely different way. He says the Christian gospel is ultimately about Christ crucified. At its very core, that's what the Christian message is about. Not about signs, not about intellectualism, about Christ crucified. And he isn't here just to point out, saying that the resurrection isn't important. Later in this very letter, he'll say, actually, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, then everything that we're doing is pointless. We're most to be pitied of all people. He's actually trying to play up how foolish this is. He's focusing on the most difficult part, the most foolish part. And this part, he says, to Jews, it's a stumbling block. They walk along and they trip over it. To Greeks, it's just foolishness. But, and here's the key, key bit, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The thing that makes the difference is the call of God, the God who is on mission. And this is the key point to get tonight. It's only when God calls someone, when God does something in someone's heart, that they respond to him. For anyone to respond to the gospel, he first has to do a work in their heart. And this language of call, we tend to maybe misunderstand. When we think of calling, we think of something like going to the park, and you let the dog off the lead, and the dog goes off into the wood, and so you call the dog. Now the problem is, you don't know if your dog's going to hear you or not. And actually, even if your dog does hear you, you don't know if he's going to come back or not. He might be having far too much fun. But actually, God's call is not like that. And God's call is effective. The call to the dog may or may not have the desired effect. God's call always has the desired effect. Sometimes we call it the effective call of God. As God calls, saving faith springs to life in someone's heart. The missionary God calls someone to himself. It's a bit like my tape measure here. I know that when I press the button on my tape measure, it's going to come back to me. There's a certainty about how it works. And that's what the call of God is like. As he calls, there's a guarantee that the person will come to them. (laughs) Saving faith can only come when God calls a person. And this doesn't remove the need for a voluntary response. The Bible says simultaneously that someone can only respond to God when he first works in their heart, but also that every person must make a voluntary response to him. And we need to hold both of those as true because God has said that both of those are true. And this wasn't just Paul who said this. Jesus himself said this. John six forty four. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. God does the drawing. It's only when he starts doing that that anyone's going to want to come to Jesus. In Acts uh, 16, verse 14, Luke tells us about a lady called Lydia. And when Lydia heard the gospel, 
Luke tells us the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It was only when God had done something in her heart that actually she responded to what she was hearing. And James, in his letter, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Of his own will, that's God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's God's own will. When God acts, that new birth comes and we're able to respond to him. There's a consistent biblical message. But we also see it in experience. The story of C.S. Lewis is really great here. He writes about the day he became a Christian. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven out to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we reached the zoo. I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. C.S. Lewis was just on the way to the zoo. He'd heard the gospel. Maybe he understood something of the gospel. But actually, it was only on the way to the zoo that God called him. And in a moment, he knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that all this stuff he might have known applied to him. It mattered to him that he needed to do something about it. And maybe you can think of that moment in your own life. The moment when you went from understanding something of the gospel or kind of just having some knowledge of it to knowing you needed it. The moment when God did something in your heart and you went, I need to respond. I need a saviour. I need to be reconciled to my God. So you may be thinking, well, if God's the one on mission, if God's the one who calls, and we don't convince, persuade, that's what God does, why should we be preaching the gospel? Why should we be telling people about Jesus? Well, there's two key reasons. One is because, amazingly, God's chosen to let us play a part. Amazingly, God's chosen to make us his partners in this task. He puts us in the privileged position. And it's the way, often the way that as we speak the gospel to people, as we announce it to people, that's the moment at which God calls people. That's the moment at which God brings saving faith in people's heart. The second reason is simply that we don't know who God will call. We don't know when he'll call them. So actually we want to keep on giving the gospel to people, knowing that any moment God could do that. It's like if you're sowing seed, if you're sowing a big kind of field full of seed, you know that not every seed's going to grow. But actually you trust that many are. And so you go and you throw out the seed, trusting that some are going to come. That's what it's like. We're throwing out seed, trusting that God's going to bring growth. And that's ultimately what Jesus says. The parable of the sower is ultimately not about our response, but about the soils. It's four different types of soil. And Jesus is explaining why sometimes we tell people the gospel and nothing seems to happen. Or something seems to happen and it doesn't last. But sometimes it happens and it lasts and people turn to Jesus. And Paul himself got this, even though he thoroughly understood that God's the one on mission, God's the one who calls people. He gave his life to striving to proclaim the gospel to people. Later in this very letter, he says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This didn't cause Paul to kind of sit around and think, okay, that's good, God can do that, I'm off down the pub or something. He decided, no, no, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to keep proclaiming the gospel. So then what difference this makes to us? When we think about our partnership with God on his mission, how does this help us? Well, luckily for us, Paul actually tells us. After he's given this key statement of truth, he begins to defend it. He begins to give us some evidence for it. First, he says, well, look around to your own church. He says, look at you, Corinthians. Not many of you are clever. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are the kind of top guys in society. He says, but God's chosen you to show that it's not about wisdom. He's chosen you. He even says, actually, to shame the wise. And to show that actually it's all about God's work. That anyone who might choose to boast, boasts only in what God has done, not in what any human has done. 
And then the next bit of evidence Paul gives, he says, well, remember when I came to Corinth? Remember when I preached the gospel to you and how I did that? And he says, that wasn't with persuasive words. That wasn't with cleverness. That wasn't why you responded. It was because of what God was doing. So let's read what he says. Chapter 2, this is, the first uh, five verses. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think there's three really useful lessons and tips we can learn from Paul here about how we apply this truth to our partnership in God's mission. First off, we've got the task. What's our task in partnering in mission? Paul says he came to the Corinthians proclaiming to them the testimony of God. Our mission is about proclaiming or preaching. It's not about persuading or convincing. It's about proclaiming something that is true. And we often misunderstand the language of preaching. We think that preaching is what I'm doing now. It's something a few people do to the gathered church. But actually, the language of preaching, its origin, is basically in the newscasting of the day. A preacher or a herald would turn up in an ancient city and would declare to them, would shout to them the truth of what was going on. They might have run from a battlefield to tell them what happened in the battle. They might have come from the emperor to tell them what the emperor had declared for the empire. They were the news reporters, or a bit like town criers used to be in this country. Before many people could read, before there was any modern media, town criers with their funny jackets and hats and their big bells would go out to the town and they'd shout out and declare to people the news of what was going on. That's what we're called to do. If you notice, news reporters don't try to convince you that what they're saying is true. The job of a news reporter is not to convince, it's to announce what already is true. So our task is to proclaim, to announce to people the message. What then is the message? Well, Paul says that in Corinth, he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our message is the news about what Jesus has done in history. That the Son of God came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and I was exalted and is reigning over all. And I think this is a big challenge for us. In the modern West, there's a big risk. Actually, most of our evangelism because we find it easier, we make it about a promise of life change rather than a declaration of what Jesus has done. Actually, it's very easy for us to basically call people and say, look, what well, Jesus has made my life so much better. He'll do the same for you if you follow him, which is quite a different thing. And the problem with that is there's just no guarantee. Now, every person who comes to Jesus will receive every spiritual blessing in Christ, will spend eternity with Jesus in a perfect new creation. But actually, in this life, Jesus says there'll be troubles. And for 2,000 years, Christians have kind of shown that often being a Christian in this world is harder than not being. And there's many places around the world on this very day where if you became a Christian, you would lose everything. Your family, your friends, your job, your possessions, your life would immediately be in danger. If we bring the gospel as a, it will make your life better message, actually, there'll either be no response. The response that comes will be very shallow. And when actually life doesn't change, life doesn't get better, there's still difficult days, people just give up. Clearly, I think the gospel doesn't work. But when we remember the gospel is about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the fact he's now exalted and reigning on high, that never changes, that never fails. 
And so testimony has its place. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. There's a really important place for testimonies, for sharing what God's done in your life, for your story with your friends. But we need to learn to say our testimonies in such a way that ultimately they point to Jesus, not point to life change. And Paul himself does this. In Acts 26, Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. And he's telling the story of how he was a persecutor of the church, how he hated Jesus. He was killing Christians. But Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He transformed him into a man who loved Jesus, who is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. But he doesn't say, and God can take you from being a nasty man to being a happy man. He says, and Jesus is now exalted and will forgive anyone who calls on his name. He uses his story, his experience, to point to Jesus, point to what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing now. And friends, I think that's what we need to be doing. We're called to be people who announce news, and the news we announce is what Jesus has decisively done in history. And then finally, what about the method? How do we actually kind of go about doing this? Well, Paul starts, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. How reassuring is that? Even the Apostle Paul found evangelism scary. I find that so, so reassuring. And actually, if you're reading Acts before he gets to Corinth, it kind of makes sense. He goes to Thessalonica, there's a big riot, he gets thrown out, he goes to Berea, he has a bad time. He goes to Athens, things are a bit better, a few people respond, but it's still pretty hard work. By the time he comes to Corinth, you can imagine he's very discouraged. He's very worried. He's very nervous. But actually, rather than going, no, no, I'm out. I've had enough. This this doesn't work, or I'm not the man for the job. He's going, no, I'm going to keep going. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling fearful. I'm, I'm even trembling, but I'm going to keep going. I find that such an encouragement. And he says, I came to you. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. When Paul came, he didn't come with clever words and persuasive arguments. He just let the Spirit demonstrate his power. And he's not here talking about miracles. We would expect the plural there. He's talking about demonstrations of power. He's talking about the fact that actually when the gospel is claimed and when God does something in someone's heart, it's a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit to change a heart. The power of the Spirit to evoke a reaction, a response of saving faith in someone's heart. So again, there's a real place for signs and wonders in our evangelism. They're like huge motorway signs that point to the truth that Jesus is now exalted and reigning. And when they happen, we need to use them as as doorways to doing that, as pointers, as signs to who Jesus is, to this message we're called to carry. And the reason for all of this, Paul says, is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If he just used wise words, then their response would have been based on his wise words not on the power of God. I think, as I said, the bigger challenge for us, if we just use the promise of life getting better, people's response will be on the tentative hope that that's going to happen, not in the power of God to save perishing humans. So our method must be that we proclaim this news, this message of the historical, what Jesus has done in history, in simple words, allowing the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the proof. So God's on mission. We're called to partake. Our task is to announce the news. The message is what Jesus or what God has done through Jesus in history. And the manner is to do it very simply. I just want to give three further applications. Just because there's so much good we can get out of this passage. I just want to encourage you to be open to what's the Holy Spirit highlighting to you now. For each one of us here, there'll be different things where this truth comes and it maybe knocks out lies or it gives us peace. It helps us. And just as I share these three additional things, just be open to the Holy Spirit kind of prompting you and saying, that one's for you. You need to believe this truth. First of all, this means there's no guilt for us when people don't respond to the gospel. 
If you've been trying to share the gospel with a friend or a family member for years and years and they're not responding, it's not something that should make you feel guilty. It's not a failing on your part because actually we know we do our bit and we hand it over to God. And we leave it in the hands of the good, loving, sovereign God. It means that the gospel can save anyone. Those friends who you think, oh, I would love them to come to know Jesus, but they're just so far away. The, the way they think or the way they live or whatever it might be just makes them seem like it's never going to be possible that they would respond to Jesus. We know if it was your mission, it probably wouldn't be possible. But in God's mission, it's possible for anyone. God in a moment can call someone and evoke a response in their heart. So those people who you feel discouraged, who you feel like, I, just, I don't know if you've got the energy to keep going. Actually, God wants to say, keep going. Because he can do it in a moment. And the final thing, the thing which I find the biggest challenge, all of this means that prayer is so, so vital in mission. There are two ways we get involved in mission. We need to do them both. We need to go, we need to proclaim in simple words, trust in the Spirit's going to come power. And we need to cry out to God that he would have mercy on our friends and family. He would call them. He would do what only they, he can do in their hearts. And God loves it when we do that. When we pray, it shows our faith. You don't pray if you don't think God's going to do anything, actually. When you pray, you're showing God, I believe you do this. I believe it's your heart's desire to do this. And I'm putting my faith that you're going to do this. He wants us to keep on battling. I shared a story this morning of a lady who prayed for 25 years for her dad, who wasn't a Christian. And every time she talked to him about Jesus, he just got angry. He just got kind of snappy with her. And she prayed for 25 years. And finally, one day, they were going through some stuff. He'd become quite ill. And they were going through his will and stuff. And she said, Dad, there's something far more important. And that's that you know that Jesus loves you and wants to save you. And there's a great quote. She says, in that moment, he became like a lamb. Previously, he'd been angry and snappy. He became like a lamb. And he just said, I know. And she was able to lead him to Jesus. 25 years of praying. And then after I shared that story this morning, a lady in this church called Hilary came to me. She said she prayed for her dad for many, many more years than that. But the same thing happened. And she fought for years and years and years and years in prayer. She did not let go. She did not give up. So that moment came when God called. And he responded. And now he's with Jesus. If you're willing and able, would you like to stand with me? I'd just love us just to take a couple of minutes just to connect with this in our hearts. Let's just start inviting the Holy Spirit. Just start talking to God, asking him to come highlight to you the things that he wants to apply in your heart, the things that he wants to bring, the truths that he wants to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and say, come and speak to us. Come and apply this truth we've heard deep into our hearts. Come and push out lies. And come and talk to us, Jesus, about where we should be applying this. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.